You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Knew it would be the offseason of quarterback chaos, and another domino has fallen. Carson Wentz is now an Indianapolis Colt, and you're going to see all of this conversation about who won, how much was paid for him. I don't care. I love this move for Indianapolis. It's Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, presented by Progressive Insurance. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, all of our guests will join us on the Goodyear Hotline, and coming up in just a few minutes, we'll get to Indy and get some sense of how that local market feels. But, Sarah, this is a mega deal. Time for some straight talk brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. As the 85th pick this year in this year's draft goes over from Indianapolis to Philadelphia, and as in addition, as you just heard in Sports Center, the next year, a second-round pick that could become a first-round pick, depending on how much Carson Wentz plays. That's the return bounty, and in exchange, in my mind, Indianapolis just up upgraded at the most important position on the field, and they made their football team next year better. So I am all in on this move for the Colts. I think it's a good move. They didn't have a real plan. This is a playoff team with a very average outing from Phillip Rivers last year. You know, there there were other opportunities potentially out there in, in, in you know, free agency. There are other quarterbacks who are floated around as potentially being available. But other than Deshaun Watson, I don't know. And even Deshaun Watson's not a guarantee. But the other names don't seem guaranteed to be on the move, only if the, only if the timing's right. And Jacoby Brissett wasn't the guy that you wanted to send out there with a team that's in a window to win. I think what I took away from this, because I, I sort of started to presume that this was the deal that was going to get made when it was publicly made clear that that's where Wentz preferred to go, the connection with Frank Reich, all of it felt like it was just waiting to see what they would give up. And it's not a lot. And that's because of the leverage issues that the Eagles had here, Fitz. Not only did Wentz sort of cut them out at the knees by whoever his rep was saying, I don't want to go to Chicago. I want to go to Indy. That means Chicago, from what we've now heard, didn't even make an offer. And nobody else really wanted him the way that the Eagles presumed uh, his value might be. So now you're left with a Colts team that doesn't give up much and has some fail-safes in there where their picks are not nearly as valuable if Wentz doesn't work out. It's a 70% of games plus the playoffs or 75% of games. If he plays that much, then the bounty is bigger for the Eagles. But they didn't get a lot back, and he's still leaving the biggest dead cap hit in the history of the NFL. Almost $34 million on the Eagles cap for a guy that's not playing for them. Yeah, which is part of the conversation we need to just stop when we say dead cap money won't uh, will prevent a trade because it doesn't seem to be true anymore. Spain and Fitz. <laughs> Not if you get totally Spain, stuck. <laughs> I mean, at some point, though, for, when I look at what Indy's up, and, and everybody's going to talk about Deshaun, I'm with you. I don't think Deshaun is, is, was going to be a realistic option within the division, even if he ends up going somewhere else. I don't think Dak is going anywhere else. So at some point, you got to look at it for the Colts and say, okay, when we take those two guys out of the conversation, now it is. We built a roster built to win today we need a quarterback and we don't have one I didn't love the Philip Rivers signing last year but frankly they made better out of it than I thought they would so now they get Carson Wentz and Carson Wentz comes in and look this is a quarterback that as bad as it was at times last year has proven through the course of his career to be fairly risk averse he's somebody with you know the last couple of years 27 touchdowns seven picks 21 touchdowns seven picks 33 touchdowns seven picks see a trend like he's somebody that throws makes the right throws and doesn't make the wrong throws more often 
often than not. He doesn't have to be Patrick Mahomes. He just has to be the best available option that was realistic for this team to acquire. And that in and of itself to me is a home run if you can get him. Because realistically, as you mentioned, it's a roster that's in a Super Bowl caliber window right now. So you've got to. You have a responsibility to the rest of the roster that you built to give yourself the best person behind center that you can possibly acquire. That looks to me like it's Carson Wentz, clearly. So, to me, that's why this is a massive and great move by the Colts. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Don't forget to subscribe to the Spain and Fitz podcast on Apple, iTunes, podcast app, ESPN app, wherever you get your pods. You're very enthusiastic, and and I, I agree with you because I think the Colts needed an upgrade, and he will be, if this works out, from Jacoby Brissett. I'm not going to get as excited, though, because this is a big fix. There was some really good reading out today really trying to detail what happened to the guy who, when he was last paired up with Reich in in Philly, led the league in total QBR, had an Eagles franchise record 33 touchdown passes, and then dissolved into having some of the worst numbers in the league last year. Well, it was health, right? A bunch of injuries. And you have to figure out how that's affecting his mechanics, which have gotten progressively worse with each injury. He doesn't push the ball down the field and doesn't get ahead of defenses because he doesn't trust the people he's throwing to and he doesn't trust himself. His accuracy is gone for that very same reason. He doesn't get in to the windows. He gets to them after they've closed. He's afraid of pressure at any moment. He's got terrible, scared feet, and he doesn't think his line will protect him, which leads him to the bad decision-making. Some of those are fixed by a great pass protection offensive line in Indy. Right? Some of those are fixed by hopefully new, fresh relationships with his receivers and a coach in Reich who believes in him and creates an offense around him with confidence. But what about the injuries and the mechanics? What about that first time that he gets let down by a big drop or a sack and starts to get in his head again? I don't like when we sort of vaguely throw guys under the bus for no confidence or he's soft or whatever we've been hearing about Wentz. I want to give him the shot to reemerge as a talented quarterback because we saw that talent. But I also believe that just because we can't pinpoint it with a statistic the way that we might with accuracy or touchdowns or interceptions, that mental part of the game is massive. And there's enough smoke around that that I believe there is truly a fire around that part of who he is, and that needs to be the first fix. Part of that, though, Sarah, to me, is fixed by going to Indy. And and by that, I mean when you're in a pressure cooker like Philly. And frankly, part of the reason I wouldn't have loved Carson in Chicago— when you go to a market oh, like we'll that, we'll get to ever, that. A I mean, victory laps around my block this morning when I heard this went through. <laughs> oh, but when there's more. But when you when you have a bad game, is much hype that would come with Carson Wentz to many different teams. You have a bad game, you're out to dinner with your wife. Somebody's going to say something. Like you are going to hear it constantly, and that can crack people. And and I don't think that's just an athlete thing. Like I don't know why we presume that athletes are superhuman in the way they process everything. Many of us would prefer if we have the opportunity to work around people that we feel like believe in us and trust in our talents and are giving us the best opportunity environment to succeed. Carson Wentz seems from the outside looking in and from what we've heard from people around him to maybe be that type of person. If that's the case, Indy's a great spot because if you have a bunch of bad games in Indy, it's not like there's going to be this massive revolt against you. I mean, Indy doesn't have that same level of core. I'm not calling the, the fan base lackluster, but they don't have that same level of I live, eat, and breathe and I die this if you play poorly so he's able to be a little insulated in a in an easier bubble for that mental aspect too that's part of why I love all of this I agree with you on that 
And I think, again, you can't Yay. you can't not point to the <laughs> offensive line and the new weapons and a coach that he has a great relationship with as a big part of this. On the other side, though, the Eagles don't get that much. They are now left in the awkward position of Eagles fans rooting for Wentz to be good enough to play significantly for the Colts in order for that trade to, to bump up to a first rounder. Um, and they're left looking at Jalen Hurts instead of sort of the all positive because he's the guy that isn't Wentz as now a lot of question marks because he's our only guy. The backup quarterback behind a beleaguered starter is the most popular guy on any team until they become that beleaguered starter, and then they're the guy that the IR is focused on. Uh, Chris Mortensen was on Barton Hahn today and pointed out that like just because they've rid themselves of the albatross that was Wentz doesn't mean that they really know what they have at signal caller. The Eagles will bring somebody else in and let that person, that quarterback, compete with Jalen Hurts for the starting job. So this is not going you know, what I, my understanding is it's not going to be automatically Jalen Hurts, you're the quarterback, but whether it be by draft, and wouldn't that be ironic? I mean, this is not going to go well over in Philadelphia if they turn around and they're drafting another quarterback. But at some mm. point, Sarah, they sit there with the sixth pick in the draft. There are three quarterbacks. Everybody's infatuated. We know Trevor Lawrence is going to go one. Uh, there's a lot of speculation that two will be either Justin Fields or Zach Wilson out of BYU. That means a third quarterback could be right there for the taking for Philadelphia. And even if they don't want to make that tough decision, they might be faced with that tough decision, like it or not. That's going to and be. And we know that Jalen Hurts things. has has been in that position before and has handled it about as well as anyone in history of sports. Right, <laughs> that pressure and even that replacement. So uh, he he'll he'll be ready. Oh, uh, there is no doubt about that. I respect the young man for that. So that's some straight talk. Straight talk, wireless, no contracts, no compromise. Plus, I just got old enough to call a starting, starting quarterback. Young man, good Lord, I'm falling <laughs> off the rails. Coming up, good move or bad move for the Colts. We'll get some reaction direct from Indy next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. I was sitting at the table today just to kind of hanging back thinking, oh, it's going to be an easy day. And then all of a sudden, I see the little red banner at the bottom of the screen. Breaking news. It's the breaking news everybody's been talking about all day. Carson Wentz is now an Indianapolis Colt. So, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, we're going to break it all down, and we're going to get a little local perspective to do it now from, I mean, that's national in the sense that he's all over the place. But Bob Kravitz knows Indy, knows the Colts better than most. You can uh, check him out on The Athletic, The Athletic Senior Writer. Bob, uh, thanks so much for joining us on the Goodyear Hotline. So, uh, let's start with uh, the obvious, your impressions on Carson Wentz, the starting quarterback for the Indianapolis Colts. Yeah, I think this was the best case scenario. Um, you know, I, I, he's a guy who's shown he can play at an extremely high level. He was 2017. He was at an MVP uh, caliber level. Um, you know, obviously he's had problems. Uh, he had, you know, he fell off the table last year. But I think they feel like if they can get him with a good team where he's not going to be uh, needed to be a hero all the time, uh, you know, really good defense, great running game, terrific offensive line. I think they feel like getting him back together with Frank Reich is just what he needs to get his head back right because I think most of his issues are from the neck up. Here in Chicago, uh, there were a lot of exchanges made via text and social media, sort of the fake Facebook today marked safe from Carson Wentz. And, you know, things made clear that Bears fans were not interested. That's partly because it'd be a bad fit with their offensive line and such, but also because there are some very serious doubts about returning him to form. Does it feel like there's as much hesitance in Indy, or has the combination of the skill set on the team and the coach convinced people that this is a positive move? 
across the board? Well, I, I think they could have brought just about anybody in, and people here would have figured out a way to make it make it a positive uh, for for the Colts. But I think there's a feeling here that um, you know he was good to great for three four years, and you know like you know with Darnold. We don't know if he can do it. We've never, you know, he's played with a terrible team, clearly, but we don't know if he can do it at a high level. We know that Carson Wentz has this potential in him. So I I think that uh, the people around here are thrilled. Um, It's been, you know, what, five quarterbacks starting opening day in the last five years or four, and Carson will be five. So uh, I think the idea of having somebody – uh, at the quarterback position, who has a chance to be a dynamic player once again. Uh, it excites Colts fans who've uh, really never quite recovered from Andrew Luck retiring the way he did. We're talking to Bob Kravitz, the athletic senior writer, about today's mega deal, Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. So you mentioned Andrew Luck retiring. and It's almost funny to me in some ways, Bob, because Chris Ballard took over a roster that was essentially known as a quarterback and not much else. He's done a great right. job building what I think is a very good roster, but now he hasn't had his quarterback. Did that make him more desperate to try and make something happen because where they are now is an entire roster? Absolutely. I mean, they, they made it very clear. Jim Ursay, the owner, spoke uh, with the media a couple of weeks ago, and he made it pretty clear without saying it outright that they were looking for somebody who, uh, you know, had a couple of years under his belt. And I think – you know they were they were interested as a as a um, a second option uh, moving up in the draft, but I, I think they really wanted a Stafford or a Wentz or even a Darnold, somebody who's played a couple of years in the league and they don't have to start from uh, from from zero with him. So I, I I'm pretty I'm pretty um, I don't want to say excited about the move, but I think there's a tremendous upside here, and I don't feel like the Colts have given up that much, you know, even if they, they give up a first rounder uh, next year, um, it's going to be a late, late, a guy late in the round. So um, I, I, I think it's a very fair deal for both sides, which is kind of unusual. So you do think it's fair for the Eagles. Is it just the fact that they have to eat that giant cap hit? That's what allows you to feel like they well, didn't deserve to get more. Right. Well, that, that's the scary thing is, you know, when, when a team is willing to take the largest dead money cap hit in the history of the NFL, you know, you certainly have to look look at the guy and say, what exactly went wrong? I mean, I talked with uh, Ron Jaworski for quite a while this afternoon. He really feels like he still has all the elements that that you need to be a really, you know, to be a top-notch quarterback. But you know, something went wrong. Uh, obviously, the Eagles weren't very good. The offensive line wasn't good. They gave up 50 sacks. They started, I think, 35 or 36 different guys on offense. Um, their skill positions were kind of decimated. Um, but they, they feel like they can, if they can just get him back to being a top 10 to top 12 quarterback, which is basically what he was from his second through his fourth year, uh, they feel like they can do some things next season. What are some things in your mind, Bob? Let's say they get him to top 12 quarterback. How good is this Colts team? Yeah, I, I think they have a chance to go deep in the playoffs. You know, as long as, as, long as that Mahomes guy is still in Kansas City, um, I think uh, <laughs> it's going to be really tough to get, get past that barrier just the way the, 
uh, our Indiana Pacers always used to run into Michael Jordan or LeBron James. Uh, so, but I, I do think this team with the running game, if they if they can replace Anthony Costanzo at left tackle, if they can get a little more uh, going in the way of uh, uh, talent at the wide receiver and tight end spot, I see no reason why this team can't uh, you know not only win the division but get deep in the playoffs. And as far as the rest of the team, where are the holes, Bob? We know about, you know, the offensive line, good defense, et cetera. What else needs to be shored up for that to come true? Yeah, well, again, they have to replace Anthony Costanzo, who retired at left tackle. There was some crazy talk about them moving Quentin Nelson from guard to tackle, but uh, I think that's exactly what it is, crazy talk. Um, They need to upgrade their wide receiver spot. T.Y. Hilton, I don't think he'll be back. My colleagues would probably disagree with me there, but uh, I don't think T.Y. Will be, will be back. They need to upgrade there. They need to upgrade a tight end. But, man, they're, they're in pretty good shape. This is a very good defense. You know, DeForest Buckner will be in his second year in Indianapolis. Uh, they may lose Xavier Rhodes, so they may need some help at the corner position. But this team is not terribly far away from being able to do some special things. You guys can follow him on Twitter at B Kravitz, and then, of course, read him on The Athletic. Bob, we appreciate your time. Thanks so much for the insight, my friend. Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Bob. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance, making it easy to bundle your home and car insurance. A lot of positivity right now, I think rightfully so. And Indy, <laughs> I only think rightfully so, Sarah, because it agrees with me, really. That's right. all it comes down well, to. Well, I was also like, just thinking when like, he said, no matter what the move is, they would find a way to spin it positive. I'm like, must be nice. What a great place to be. <laughs> <laughs> That's not how we operate over here. <laughs> Oh, nobody said that bum yet? All right, coming up, (laughs) we'll continue to celebrate Black History Month. We'll look back on the rise of the fall in the Negro Leagues with an interesting story next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Thursday, welcome back to Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz with you on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. And joining us now, it's Andrea Williams, author of Leading Lady, Effa Manley and the Rise and Fall of the Negro Leagues. Effa Manley, the first and only woman elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame, uh, done posthumously and quite recently as they opened up a lot of the record books and history to the Negro Leagues. Andrea, thanks for the time. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. First, let's hear about Effa Manley and why you thought 2021 was the time to write a book about her life. Yeah, um, Effa Manley is, as you mentioned, the first and only woman inducted into Cooperstown. But, I mean, she was just really incredible in terms of the career that she was able to build. She, you know, we, we're seeing now Kim Ang become the first female general manager of a major league baseball team in and. Effa did that in the 1930s and 40s. So she she handled all the player contracts and negotiations, really all the day-to-day on the business side of running this team and was really also so so focused on using her team to provide a platform and, and progress for the black community on the whole. So she would hold fundraisers for the NAACP and anti-lynching protests. You know, once we get into integration, she wanted to make sure that black teams were compensated for their black players. So, um, yeah, she really she really played a huge role, not just in baseball history, but American history. And interestingly, the, the lead time on publishing a book is pretty long. So this thing was written <laughs> 
sold to my publisher in like 2019. So it just so happened that, you know, it comes around this time where like Major League Baseball makes this announcement and all these things. Um, but yeah, she. I was going to catch myself and say, I know you didn't just write this book in two months. I should have said yeah, released no in 2021, like, not wrote it in 2021. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but that's a good question. I don't think people understand like how long it takes to get the book from like concept to on the shelf at, at a bookstore. Um, but but yeah, she you know it was it was really important for me. She always stood out to me as a I studied sport management. Thought that I wanted to work um, you know in the front office of a baseball team. So her story really always meant a lot to me. This took me a little while to get to the point where I really felt comfortable telling her story. It was you know path through journalism, which I still do, and then also some ghost and co writing to get to this moment now where you know I felt like I really wanted to wanted to tell her story and then wanted to tell it for kids. So this is like this is me doing the Disney thing where it's like it's packaged for kids, but also adults will enjoy it and hopefully get a lot out of it too. Um, and yeah, the timing just ended up being incredibly serendipitous. I guess what what sort of stuns me through all of this, Andre, is that this as much as we constantly talk about some of the issues Major League Baseball has and the lack of representation, but specifically when it comes to black players and uh, the lack of diversity, why is this story not told more often? I, I it really goes back to who gets to tell the story, right? Like for mm-hmm. so long, you know, we come out of you know even 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 the year that Jackie Robinson goes and plays for the Dodgers, you know, Kansas City, the Kansas City Star, my hometown paper, just recently, I think a couple months ago, did this special issue where they acknowledged that their coverage, how they chose to write about black people or not, ends up contributing to white supremacy and racial bias, and. When Jackie Robinson goes to play for the Brooklyn Dodgers, he gets like a tiny paragraph or two, like 14 pages in to the issue. So all of these things matter. First, we have this idea that like the stories don't matter at all. And then once we start to tell the stories, who gets to tell them, right? And it's mostly middle-aged white guys. And so when they tell the story, we get the story from the Major League Baseball perspective. We get the story of Branch Rickey being the savior, of him swooping in and creating this opportunity for Jackie Robinson. We never hear about what happened to black baseball. We never hear that he did play, pay for these players' contracts. We certainly never hear about the managers and executives who were left behind because Major League Baseball was never interested in them. It was interested in that handful of players that they deemed worthy enough to make the leap. Those guys who would come in, perform really well, contribute to their teams, and also really not make a fuss, right? Like, they're not going to come in, you know, that scene that we see all the time, Jackie Robinson, I need you to be the guy who's not going to say anything if someone flies in right. spikes first or calls you the N-word. Like, this is, this is the story that we are told. This is how we decide who the heroes are. And, yeah, the family story is 100% going to be lost in that. And I tell people all the time because I get the question, like, why, why do you think there's only one woman? It is, it is because of the Negro League that Effa Manley was even able to build a Hall of Fame-worthy career. Like, the fact that she was able to run a team, run a championship-level team, her team won the 1946 World Series, that only happens because the Negro Leagues exist. And then when the Negro Leagues no longer exist because of, again, how we did integration and we only cherry-picked a few worthy black players, now there's not even an opportunity for anybody to come behind her any other women to come behind her and, and run a team like that on that level because, you know, 
Major League Baseball wasn't doing that. They weren't opening their doors even even to black players. It took until 1959, you know, for every team to get at least one black player. And then so many years after that, there's this quota system. And it takes, you know, here we are, 2020, before Kim Ang gets the call with the Marlins. So it, it really is about who controls the pen, who is telling these stories. And so with my book, I 100% wanted to rectify that. It's Spain and Fitz. We're talking to Andrea Williams, the author of Leading Lady, Effa Manley, and the Rise and Fall of the Negro Leagues. Um, She obviously was a prominent executive in the Negro Leagues with her husband. Um, She also was invested in in activism and was active in the civil rights movement. She was the treasurer of the Newark chapter of the NAACP. She, She passed as black, but there's a lot of question marks actually about her biological and racial background because she was raised by a black stepfather and her mother and you go back and there seems to be some confusion about her actual ethnicity but she classified herself as black and passed as black identified as black do you get into that in the book and the meaning of how she moved throughout the world based on potentially being able to also pass as white yeah i do actually um and yeah, it's it's a it's a sticky subject, I think. Um, but the thing that I try to point out that I've mentioned in a couple other interviews is that yes, Eva considered herself black, but we also have census records. We have her mother's census records that say that her mother was mulatto. So I think pretty much we all, you know, historians included, agree that her father was this white man who her mother had a relationship with. But if her mother is is of some mixed ancestry, then that means that Eva carries that too. I find it interesting that with these census records, with, you know, Effa going on record, like her marriage certificates all say that she's black. I think it's interesting that we want to assume her white until proven black instead of the other way around. Right, and that's right. when we get into this weird, really weird, like, politics of passing and during this era and what white supremacy does, not just to white people, but to black people. And I think if we're honest, we're looking at this woman who could pass for white. She did say that, you know, if she was traveling alone, she would stay at white only hotels and eat at white only restaurants. But it's interesting to me that we assume that a woman who could pass would automatically do so. Like, why would you have the opportunity to escape what it meant to be black in America and not do that? Why would you be Effa Manley and not only choose to stay in the black community, but marry a really regular black guy, right, who makes his money running numbers, who is generally an outcast of upper black society, you know, continuing, as you mentioned, to advocate on the black community. Why do that, right? She could have run away from all of that. But we also know that passing means you have to leave all of that behind. You don't pass as white and then get to come, you know, check in with your black people every now right. and then. Right. And so she had grown up you know, around these black siblings, you know, again, if her mother is, you know, if we believe the census records of her, of her mother, I don't know why we would not. And that means she has some of that too. And I think that she really was so committed that she used her privilege to be able to go into doors and have conversations with white people in a way that some of her own colleagues couldn't and use her privilege to benefit the black community. And it's just, it's a really interesting conversation. You know, her own family has said, you know, she, she definitely wasn't a white woman, but we always land on this fact that she must be white. We need more proof that she could be black instead of right. the other way around. Well, it's a fascinating story, and uh, you weave 
baseball and American history with her story throughout. So readers will not only learn about this woman who is the sole representative for women in Cooperstown, but also everything else that was going on in the country and around uh, society during during the time that she was uh, a leader in the baseball world. It sounds fascinating. Uh, thanks so much for the time, Andrea, and good luck with the book. Thank you so much. I want to say my kids, I published the whole book and have been doing all these things. My kids did not think I was cool. So I told them I was doing your show. So there's oh, that. Oh, good. All right. We got you. We got you points with the kids. Shout out to Andrea's kids on ESPN. There you go. There hey, you go. You guys are in Nashville too, right? Like you stay, Nashville doesn't get a lot of snow. So, so stay safe in that snow. Like, uh, you know, after 20 years in that city, I'm telling you the number of my friends that I'm worried about today, just, just stay safe in the snow. Nobody knows what they're doing down there. Right. Yeah. Nobody at all. We're, we're hunkered down for sure. So I, I appreciate that. Good luck, Andrea. I mean, most of the hey. country right now is dealing with snow that they're not used to. It's pretty wild. And then it's like 1,000 degrees down down in Florida. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. The book is Leading Lady, Effa Manley, and the Rise and Fall of the Negro Leagues. Check it out. Andrea Williams, the author. Spain and Fitz brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. Coming up, the torch in women's tennis has been passed. Is there still a chance at 24 for the all-time greatest? It's next, ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Oh, it was tough. It was tough to watch because I, I love Naomi. She's incredible. I want to be able to root with for her with no reservations, but not when she's playing Serena. Not when Serena's going for 24 and it went too fast and it wasn't enough of a fight. It was tough to watch last night. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. Osaka defeating Williams last night in straight sets. She advances. Goes on to actually face a woman, Fitz, I don't know if you know this, but in, in the final now, who had to go through the full two-week quarantine without ever leaving her room for even a minute for two weeks because she happened to be on one of the flights over there that had someone who tested positive for COVID. So, like, she didn't even get to get outside for an hour to practice like everyone else, and here she is in the final. So, boo on all of our guesses at how those things might affect your ability to compete. It doesn't seem to work out like that. But last night, we get this Serena Osaka. I just Osaka. keep picturing, like, this mindset, though, like, I keep picturing Michael Scott, you know, screaming no when you get the, the, the answer right. that suddenly there's a COVID issue and you did nothing wrong, but you're going to be quarantined for the next two weeks. That's all I yeah. can picture when you well, say she Well, she made something work. She's in the final now against Osaka. Um, <laughs> this, was, this was a tough watch because Serena started out aggressive and strong and everybody rooting for her to get that record-tying number 24 felt confident. And she looked fast and she looked like she could keep up. And then as soon as Osaka hit her stride and stopped making unforced errors, it was over. She Her serve was too strong, her forehand too powerful, and her speed and agility on the court was old-school Serena, not 39-year-old Serena. I, I don't know if people really understand the skill set required to still be great at tennis and how that is very different. And it's not a comparison to, say, Tom Brady, but sitting in the pocket – and achieving 0.02 of a yard per scramble is quite different from the back and forth, quick first step, endurance, power, all of that of tennis. And so watching Serena, it just made you wonder, Fitz, if this is the best she's looked in some time because of injury and everything else, uh, is it going to be good enough to actually get over the very top, keep getting to quarters and semis, but not actually get to that winner's circle again um, before she retires? 
So I'm torn on this. And by the way, you mentioned last night the the fast start for Serena. And uh, one of the things that was funny to me, I I love watching the the social media reaction. So for the first couple of minutes, there was so much love for Serena, and then it got very quiet. Like it just just got quiet because yep. everybody mm-hmm. realized what was happening. And you know, and, and it was just sheer dominance. And and I don't want to take anything away from what Naomi Naomi Osaka did in this match because it was absolutely what you you want if you're a women's tennis fan. I do think that there's a a moment of hey, this is awesome because we are seeing a rising star that is going to such a high level. There's good, there's positive in it. But you're right. I mean, to see that that crack in the armor from Serena, I, the problem is every time we see that now, it becomes a, is this it? Is this the end? I don't want to do that to her. I mean, it, it, realistically, she is still playing at an incredibly high level. And obviously, she is still getting herself into these matches, into these situations. And she still has the passion and drive to do it. I don't want us to be quick to to say, not us particularly, but society as a whole, to, to quick to say that she should hang him up just because th- this one match. It, 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 it'll take more for that for me to be comfortable saying anything about what she should do next. It's a very personal right, well, I would like for the the voices that know to not be the ones trying to retire her. Like, moron fans, fine. But she is consistently getting to a level that most tennis players will never hit at their peak, right? So I'm okay with her continuing to keep vying for number 24 if she's going to keep making semis and quarters and everything else. What's interesting to me is this conversation that we've always had, which is she's reaching for the person that came before her in Margaret Court to tie and pass that record. But what's been introduced now is she's also reaching to separate herself and put even more distance between herself and the people coming after her. We talked about this last night. It's like Tiger Woods in golf. She is playing long enough to now face the people who were inspired and and who had their path cleared by her, right? Presumably the Naomi Osaka's of the world don't have to go through the Indian Wells crap that Serena did, don't have to shoulder the burden of racism in this sport the same way that Serena and Venus did and also be great. So will that help her perhaps zoom even faster to 24 and beyond than Serena did? Maybe. And so not only is she reaching for that thing to beat the person that came before her, she's now also pressured by the idea that what she created might surpass her. That's fascinating to me. And it adds that extra dynamic of, of desperation to what she's trying to do. And it, makes totally clear why she'd be so frustrated. After the match, there was an extra extended wave and hand on her heart to the crowd in Australia, and it made you wonder, is this your last Australian Open, and then your last French, and then your last Wimbledon? This is what she said when that was sort of hinted at. It was a really poignant moment when you walked off the court to a standing ovation, and you put your hand over your heart. What was going through your head in that moment? Um, I don't know. The Aussie crowd is so amazing, so... It was nice to see. Some people wondered if this is you were almost saying farewell. Um, I don't know if I if I ever say farewell, I wouldn't tell anyone. So. Hmm. It Makes is, me wonder, well, Fitz, if we're sir, not going to get a warning then, right? She's not going to give I us mean, the "Hey, everybody, this might be it." We're just going to all of a sudden not have Serena anymore after some match. And that's fair. I, you know, I always go back to, I think, uh, uh, the end of my music career a lot when it comes to the end for athletes because I knew long – I mean, before my last show, I knew I was getting closer to my last shows, right? And so I found myself the last six months that I was on the road and it felt like things were, were changing in my life. I found, found myself – appreciating little things more. So I think that's a natural progression for so many athletes that are going through this moment of saying, hey, 
I want to soak it in because I don't know if this will be my last, you know, and, and that's a, that's a fair and reasonable portion of it. And Sarah, you make a great point when it comes to facing, you know, the, the, the future generation that is so inspired by her, because also the future generation has grown up watching an incredibly athletic, incredibly powerful, incredibly strong woman play tennis in a way that has changed the way people play tennis. So I do have to think that there's a different level of, of uh, approach and athleticism, all of these things that sort of make it incredible to watch right now that make the future of women's tennis particularly great is going to make those records tougher and tougher to stand up. So all that's got to be going through her mind because at the end of the day, she is a human being. I just don't want to turn into a, a farewell to her before she decides she's ready to say farewell. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz on ESPN Radio. Don't forget to subscribe to the Spain and Fitz podcast on the podcast app, iTunes, and the ESPN app, anywhere you get your pods. I agree with you. I think what we saw and what we talked last night about, too, was it's not just the influence of her play on those that came after her, which is very clear, right? She's having trouble beating players like Osaka because she's using her playbook, but also that it was a literal blueprint for families. We heard about this. Her father, Osaka's father, a Haitian immigrant, wanting to be Richard Williams, wanting to raise his daughters to be just like Venus and Serena. So they've they've offered up a playbook, they've offered up a blueprint, and now they're trying to, you know, Serena's trying to stave off the women that she inspired. And if they can play in the same style that she does, it, it becomes harder and harder to defeat when she's older. And again, 39 I mean, tennis is done when you're like 30 usually, right? She is she is crushing the 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 average age for this massive drop off. It's incredible what she's doing. I think we all just want it to to end up with 24, 25. Coming up, big game in the NBA tonight: Nets and Lakers, and the All Star starters are announced. We'll get into all of it next on ESPN Radio. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. All of our guests will join us on the Goodyear hotline. We'll head over there in just a second. Do want to get you some big news in the NBA. Uh, you know, as big news as the All-Star game could be. We have All-Star starters. It's been decided. The Eastern Conference All-Star starters. Easy for me to say. Kevin Durant, Giannis Antetokounmpo. Joel Embiid, Bradley Beal, and Kyrie Irving. The Western Conference starters, Steph Curry, Luka Doncic, LeBron James, Nikola Jokic, and Kawhi Leonard. So there you go. You have your all-star starters. And we've got a lot of NBA action to get into. So to do that, we'll head over to the Goodyear Hotline, where we're joined by the ringer NBA analyst Kevin O'Connor. Kevin, thanks for the time, man. We always appreciate it. Big matchup tonight between the Nets and Lakers, 10 Eastern on uh, TNT. Brooklyn's been a little bit up and down since they acquired James Harden. It looked really good. Then they lost a few. Now they've won a few. Where are you with Brooklyn at this point? With Brooklyn, there's going to be ups and downs all year long. Because this is a team, let's just be honest, uh, they're coasting. On the defensive end of the floor, they're not always locked in because for them, their priorities are not the regular season. And I feel like there's going to be a lot of nights throughout the year where they lose some games that they shouldn't lose. But I, I think when you watch the Nets, the key with them is going to be looking at how these guys ramp up in moments where they're actually trying on defense. And thus far, I feel like some of the concerns about their defense have been a little bit overblown, to be honest with you, because we saw what they did against Phoenix earlier this week without Kyrie and Katie. We saw what they did earlier this month against the Clippers where they really locked in on the defensive end of Florida, closed the game, Harden had that big stop against Kawhi Leonard. The Nets are an incomplete project. They still need to find another big but they're going to have ups and downs. But ultimately, this team, when they want to lock in, they can lock in on defense and just destroy you on offense. 
Spain and Fitz. We're talking to Kevin O'Connor. The All-Star Game has obviously been a big topic of conversation, but also a big topic, Draymond Green's comments, which felt like they're things we've always kind of talked about, but hit another nerve again this week. Did you have any big takeaways from either the Cavs response or the media response or just the general discussion yet again of player empowerment? No, I mean, I think with Draymond, it's the type of thing where in terms of the player empowerment aspect with the business side of basketball, that's incredibly complicated uh, with the way teams have restricted free agent rights after four years when a draft pick hits free agency. And that that's something that has to be collectively bargained between the PA and the NBA itself. I, I think the other point he made about how, you know, players might be treated versus how teams are treated, you know, by fans or media. I think there's a lot you know, to that that is, you know, something to listen about and learn from because ultimately it's true. You know, players often are treated differently. And I think that's where I heard his message most. Uh, the business side stuff is so complicated, though. Yeah, but at the end of the day, like we always hear players say, you know, hey, I don't listen to any of that outside noise. And then they make these arbitrary comments out of nowhere critiquing the outside noise like what is why why does it even matter at this point like did I miss a a moment here Kevin where players weren't getting their way when they really want it in the NBA yeah I mean I I I mean like I can only speak for myself if I were a player I would not care what people were saying about me on the radio or anything like that on message boards because it's like as long as the player is still getting paid as long as they're still able to do what they want to do which most players are like it does seem like with the Andre Drummond situation that's kind of mutual with the Blake Griffin situation, that's mutual to move on from those situations and go to a place where they're actually wanted. And just like with the James Harden situation, it's you know very complicated, and I'm sure he probably didn't want to have to do everything. He probably didn't like to do everything he had to do to get out of that situation. But that's part of it. Like everybody's just doing what they feel like is the best for themselves or the best for the team. And that that's the thing. Like when it comes to team decisions, whether it's trading a guy out of nowhere, like he mentioned trading DeMarcus Cousins when the Kings did that on All-Star Weekend. Teams have to think about more than just the own player. They have to think about what's the best for every player in that organization, for every coach, for everybody that works in that front office. And but I, I think it's more complicated than he made it out to be in, in the statement that he made post-game. But ultimately, I do think like it at least opens up conversation. I'm glad we've been having it this past week ever since he said it. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, we're talking to Kevin O'Connor of The Ringer. I, I, I try not to be cynical about the regular season of the NBA, but the more times we have teams like the Bucks that are dominant in the regular season and can't pull it off in the postseason, the easier it is to discount what we see during the regular season and not believe it till we see it in the postseason. Um, of the teams that we're seeing thrive, the Jazz, right, the Clippers again in the regular season, the Blazers, um, even the Pacers who are up there in the fourth spot in the East, um, are there teams that look primed to actually be able to make a deep run? And are there ones that you are already earmarking for a collapse when it comes to a, an actual series? You know, you mentioned the Bucks early on. Like, I, they're, they're complicated because they're another team sort of like the Nets where Giannis himself said their priorities are the playoffs. And the way he's performed defensively during the regular season, he's not full throttle like we saw the last two years. So, in some ways, I'm not sure like what there is to be learned right now from regular season performance. This is such a weird year with players missing time due to you know COVID protocols or you know a lot of injuries for certain teams. It's just an odd start to the year in terms of figuring out and projecting forward with the playoffs. And with that said, I do think there's certain trends. I mean, like Portland's offense is insane. Like with Damian Lillard, without CJ McCollum, without Nurkic, but I still worry about that defense. 
in a playoff setting because they're one of those teams, unlike the Nets, unlike the Bucks, that is going full throttle right now when other teams aren't. And some, maybe some of those teams end up fizzling in a playoff situation when their issues and their deficiencies in the defensive end of the floor are starting to become more apparent. But like I said, I'll be honest with you, like the, this, this regular season feels weirder than any other in terms of like figuring out what these teams actually are. So in a weird regular season, Kevin O'Connor from the Ringer on Spain and Fitz, uh, in a weird regular season, given everything going on that you just mentioned, should there be an all-star game for the NBA this year? <laughs> no. I mean, I, I, I personally <laughs> don't think so. It's, it's just not worth the risk. I mean, let's be honest. It's just not worth the risk. I'm I'm still surprised that they're, you know, going f- totally forward with this. But ultimately, the league's doing what it feels like it's best for the league and for the players, just like they did with the bubble with the financial aspect. Um, but ultimately, like, it, it, I don't think the game's worth it. Just to bring all the, the best players in the league to one place, it just seems like a recipe for disaster. If, if something goes wrong, and hopefully nothing does. What do you make of the second half of the season and how the NBA is trying to stay a little bit nimble because of COVID? Um, and do you think that that has any effect on you know teams figuring out who they are before the postseason? Well, you know, I, I feel like my answer is probably like a like a coach's style answer, where it's like teams are just going to play the schedule that right. they're given, and they're just de- you know they're just dealing with the circumstances. Like every team's dealing with this in their own respective ways, and sometimes you can do everything right, like no different, like with the pandemic, you can do everything right, and then just have something to go wrong. Like if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, and for these teams, they're all dealing with that. I think the NBA has done a better job of postponing these games with more time in advance. Um, and, and that aspect is something that I did hear coaches and people in front offices complaining about because they couldn't plan ahead as much. It was like from a logistical standpoint or, or, or from a game standpoint too, in terms of, you know, game plan and everything else. So teams are adjusting, leagues adjusting. This is hard. This is hard, but I'm glad that the NBA maintained that flexibility in the second half. Cause you know what? We're probably going to see some teams finish with like, 67, 68, 69 games. I'd be a little bit surprised if everybody gets to 72. All I know is that with that sort of political answer there, future NBA coach Kevin O'Connor. Absolutely. That's what that's, yeah. You're ready. Put it into the ethos right You're now. ready, man. Or politician. It's Twitter. really the same follow, thing. <laughs> follow him on Twitter, at Kevin O'Connor, NBA. Obviously, read him on The Ringer, and then root for him when he's wearing the suit and coat. And, uh, you got the O'Connor, whole book. I'm, 2024. I'm definitely not wearing the suit and coat. I, I'm, I'm going with the gym, gym clothes like the coaches nowadays. That's right. <laughs> That's probably fair. I would just dress like Cousin Eddie if I ever got the opportunity to be a coach in anything. All right, Cousin uh, cousin Kevin, there we go. Cousin Kevin, Kevin. appreciate your time. Thanks for hanging out with us, my friend. Thank you. Have a good one. I'm just saying the little white dicky, it would be a perfect look. All right, coming up, what does, how wow. does the Carson Wentz trade impact Careful. the other quarterback dominoes? You're welcome, America. We'll bring in an expert on that next. No, thank you. It's on ESPN Radio. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz Podcast. We just didn't know it would start happening so soon. I thought we were going to have days and days and I days. I can't hear you, Fitz. Wait. The music is too loud. You, it's a party you know up what? in here. We, it's called energy, Sarah. We just it's came in hard energy. with that beat. Woo! <laughs> uh, it's Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Doing all the things that only we can doing do Doing too point much is what we're uh, doing. <laughs> 
Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. It's quarterback chaos. Dominoes falling everywhere. The big news of the day, Carson Wentz is now an Indianapolis Colt. The question is, now that there's been value assigned to Carson Wentz, what does it mean for the value of everybody else? So we're going to get some expertise on the Goodyear hotline with our own ESPN NFL insider, Dan Graziano. We are obviously in a mood, Dan, so let's just get right to the funkiness here. When you saw the <laughs> price paid for Carson Wentz in trade exchange, what was your initial thought? I thought the Colts did a good job standing their ground because, I mean, the Eagles went in just looking for something and uh, – uh, they obviously weren't going to get it. And Indianapolis, the way they operate their franchise, is very deliberate and very directed. And they set a price and they don't go over it. Like, it's funny. They're going to end up paying Carson Wentz about what they paid Phillip Rivers, you know, per year. So it's almost, a, it's almost like they have, like, uh, you know, quarterback X, $25 million. We'll plug whoever that is in to our otherwise very good team and we'll be fine. So I'm impressed by their discipline. Um, they always have cap room. They have the cap room to absorb this. So, yeah, I, I think what we had been hearing the last couple of days was the Eagles didn't find the market they thought they were going to find or hope they were going to find. Uh, but, you know, they had, a, they had a deal that they could do at any time and that they, they were just kind of holding on in case the, the offers got better and they felt like they weren't going to. So they did this one and they cut the cord with their former franchise quarterback and move on in the hope that they can do a better job this time finding a new one. Yeah, I think my enthusiasm about the Bears not getting Wentz was mainly because I was convinced that they were going to give away too much. And I didn't think it was mm. worth that on a guy who was a question mark. I think what the Colts gave yeah. away is not a lot for somebody that you might be able no. to plug in with a good offensive line, a coach that has confidence in him, et cetera, and so on. So I think this is a good move for them. As far as the Eagles go, we're kind of looking at this based on continuing to rejigger our expectations at first it was you know Jalen Hurts is great now it's a small sample size they should hang on to Wentz now they got rid of their coach for Wentz now he still wants out like it's kind of a mess over there if you're looking at this more holistically and not just in terms of this deal they kind of screwed this whole thing up didn't they yeah (laughs) okay because everyone's kind of like it's not bad and I'm like but it's terrible they got rid of their coach and their quarterback and they didn't really get anything and they have a you know a giant cap hit you give a guy a hundred plus million dollars guaranteed and then less than two years later you're trading him that that's a that's a screw-up I mean they obviously uh did some things wrong along the way and that involves a lot of stuff I mean it involves drafting poorly and, and not being able to keep a good team around him, um, obviously. But, you know, look, this is – the Eagles are very obsessed with the quarterback position. And I think, you know, Jalen Hurts is a guy that they like a lot. Obviously, they drafted him in the second round last year. But, you know, I, if I know the Eagles and there's a guy they like at number six – they're going to take him, right? <laughs> because you don't you don't just you know, pass on a guy you think is going to be a franchise quarterback just to spare Jalen Hurts' feelings or to be fair to Jalen Hurts. That's just sort of not how they operate. So uh, I think the Eagles are not at the end of their quarterback journey here, uh, but it is it is the old adage. You know, if you have that position right, everything looks better. If you don't get that position right, you're just struggling on all fronts until you do. And I think the... I think the Eagles are in the same kind of muddle so many other teams spend their time in these days. 
We're talking to ESPN NFL insider Dan Graziano on Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. So now that we know Carson Wentz was worth a third rounder and a conditional second rounder that could become a first rounder, how much is Sarah Bears going to pay for Sam Darnold? Hey, wait a minute. Hold on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, look, I mean, Darnold's a different situation, right? Because you have one year left. There's a fifth-year option if, if the Jets decide to pick it up, or let's say hypothetically he gets traded and the new team decides to pick it up. But – you, know, you have one year left. The cost is reasonable, right? This is a recent first-round draft pick. The signing bonus is paid. So it's a, it's a little bit of a different scenario. If you're the Jets, I don't think you can reasonably expect to get a first-round pick for Sam Darnold, and I don't think the return on Carson Wentz uh, is necessarily the reason for that. I, I don't know that they could have really ever expected to get a first-round pick for Sam Darnold at this point. So if that's the guy that Chicago or whichever quarterback needy team you want to plug into this hypothetical uh decides to go after then you know the the price has to fit look this is there's a lot he has stuff going for him that once doesn't right he's cheaper he's younger um you know he he might be you might be able to project something with him that you know you haven't seen necessarily what, what you've seen with Wentz, whereas you, you've seen him peak and then kind of sink into disaster. You know, Darnold has been a guy that has shown some stuff, but hasn't necessarily been consistent, hasn't been consistently healthy. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a different scenario. I think if you're talking about, you know, Marcus Mariota or a guy, another guy who might be available uh, along those lines, you're looking at a different price point for those guys too. So it, it's it's not a apples-to-apples situation with all these quarterbacks on the, on the market. I think um, – what we saw with Jared Goff was the Rams trying to get out of a contract and having to pay more to do so uh, in addition to pay more to get Matthew Stafford. The Eagles were able to get out of a contract today by sort of taking back less than, than uh, they might have thought he was worth when the process started. Um, but, yeah, all these, all these situations are independent of each other, and I, whatever Sam Darnold goes for isn't necessarily tied to what the Eagles got for Wentz. Spain and Fitz here. We're talking to Dan Graziano, ESPN NFL insider, about the Wentz deal, sending Carson to Indy. Still some question marks uh, about exactly how much the Eagles get. It will depend on how he plays. So I ask you in this moment, knowing that many things can change. depend on how much he plays. How much he plays, right. right? And I guess presumably how well he plays will dictate how much he plays, but it could be injury, right? It could be injury or otherwise. It Uh, it tends to be injury with Carson Wentz up until this year when it was how he played. Uh, Today is February 18th, 2021. Give us your prediction for how this will work out, at least in the first year. Let's not have you say his entire tenure in Indy, however long that might be, but in the first year. I think it'll be fine. I I think that the Colts, I I feel like Carson Wentz is in kind of a do-no-harm situation, right? Like if he... If he goes out there and turns the ball over like crazy, like he did in Philadelphia this year, then they have a problem. But he's, in, he's, he's got the same assignment that Phillip Rivers had a year ago. Kind of, look, we've got a really nice team here. Just give us some steady play. Don't mess it up. You're, we're going we're gonna to keep you upright. You are not going to be running for your life behind our offensive line. Our rookie running back, or in this case, second-year running back, is a stud. Hand him the ball. Like, it, it, he'll, he'll take care of you. you know, so I think, and, and the fact that it's Frank Reich, who has such a strong relationship with Carson Wentz, I think offers hope if you're an Indianapolis Colts fan uh, that, that this can work, especially again at the price. It's a reasonable price. If he plays, if he plays starter snaps next year, then you're given a first round pick instead of a second round pick. So I, I think because I believe in what Frank Reich is doing in Indy, I think, uh, I think it's got a pretty good chance to work out. 
As always, Dan, we appreciate your insight, your expertise. Stay safe, my friend. Thanks so much for joining us. All right. Thanks, Dan. Keep, keep that music at a reasonable volume. You'll right, blow right. your ears out there. Yeah, turn right. it down, kids. <laughs> oh, Dan Graziano, always with the mic drop. Uh, ESPN NFL insider. Uh, great stuff from him, as always. Coming up next, what did I miss? We'll tell you. Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Sarah Spain and Jason Fitz. It's Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Don't forget to subscribe to the Spain and Fitz podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We sometimes do some pre and post parties that you can only get on digital and any part of the show that you might miss. Uh, As we continue to recover from the Super Bowl and our obsession with the NFL, which continues through free agency, we want to catch up on some of the sports that we, frankly, uh, didn't pay enough attention to and some stuff we might have missed, which is why we're back again with another edition of What Did I Miss? So what did I miss? What did I miss? Joining us to help us catch up on what we've missed in women's soccer, both the U.S. women's national team and the NWSL, it's the Athletics' Meg Linehan. She writes great stuff for them. She's got a podcast for them. And tonight, the She Believes Cup, women uh, of the U.S. kicking things off against Canada right now. What's the biggest thing you're looking for in this match in terms of uh, the roster and everything else looking ahead to international tournaments after this? Right. I mean, I think the interesting thing about She Believes Cup is usually this is where we get a sense of, okay, we've kind of got a sense of what the starting 11 is for the U.S. Women's National Team. This time we really might have a sense of some of the players that are really locked in. Crystal Dunn is really a player that comes to mind, but... Blocko Andonofsky, the head coach, has said multiple times, I'm still figuring things out. I'm still experimenting. I'm still looking at players. I'm still evaluating. So really the challenge for all of us watching is to try to figure out where those evaluations are going based off of game time because that's really the only data that we have access to. So right at the moment, I mean, I'm really just trying to hope that I can keep up with Blocko in terms of how he's looking at these games. Meg, I'll admit my ignorance here because as I was reading the the guide, which, by the way, is great on The Athletic, you pointed out that there is so much still on the line for the U.S. Olympic roster. How did the delay of the Olympics impact the way this roster was going to be built? I mean, I think it's really interesting because it gave players like Carly Lloyd, like Megan Rapinoe, time off, right? Carly Lloyd actually had knee surgery and got a significant layoff and then came back to it, got back into fitness and... I think she does provide value for this team, but it means that players that don't usually get the rest and the break between a World Cup year and an Olympic year actually got that time to rest. But then it also means that you have a full year and a full crop of players coming in. Like, I mean, there's so much attention on a Katarina Macario, right, who just got permission to play for the United States, who made her debut, who has already kind of looked like, oh, she's going to make that 18-player mm-hmm. Olympic roster. So... It has had both some actually unanticipated benefits to it, but I think it has also made it a little more complicated for Vlako Andonovsky to then figure out, okay, I already had to go from 23 players to 18, and now my pool is only expanding. Meg Linehan of The Athletic with us here talking about all the sports, or sorry, women's soccer news um, as we try to catch up on all the sports that we've been ignoring uh, for the NFL. Um Sticking with this She Believes Cup quickly before we move on to the NWSL, you keep mentioning this this new coach, Vlatko Andonovsky. What do we know about his style? Do we have hints about the players he might favor? Do we have any idea of people who have fallen out of favor that we've previously considered stalwarts on the team? 
Yeah, I mean, I think he's really interesting. I mean, he was really my pick when the job became available. He he comes from the NWSL, right? Two back-to-back NWSL championship wins with FC Kansas City, went to Seattle, went to the Reign, still somehow got that team into the playoffs. I think he basically had an entire starting 11 that was injured, right? Like, he is a very tactical, technical coach who is also, I think, just kind of somehow also really universally beloved by the players. I mean, I really have not heard a single bad word about him yet. He's so interested in development. I mean, I think we're already, we're always going to be in this shift of the the team kind of turning over from the 2019 World Cup, right? Veterans shifting out, young talent coming in. So I think now it's really becoming, yes, the Carly Lloyds, the Megan Rapinos, but also Allie Krieger, Ashlyn Harris, like that level of player trying to hold on to those spots as younger players are coming up or players are shifting into more important roles. I mean, I think about Sam Mewis, right, and how important she is for the team right now, though she is hurt and not going to be playing in She Believes Cup. That's kind of where that tension is, but I think it's a lot less about players being in or out of favor and really – it it really does seem like a much more merit evaluation based approach to how this roster works, how a starting eleven works, how Veko and Danofsky approaches this team. We're talking to Meg Linehan of the Athletic on Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. So Meg, let's switch gears to the NWSL. Something that Sarah is getting me incredibly hyped about. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of new ownership across the league. Why is the league getting so much momentum right now? I mean, I think we're finally starting to see some of the effects. So Angel City FC came in as an expansion team last summer. Uh, Los Angeles, a huge ownership group, right? But obviously, I mean, really, it started with Natalie Portman, actor and activist, right? So, like, you're already starting with this giant big name kind of at the heart of that group. But then you look at the ownership group that they've bought in with that team, and it's former U.S. women's national team players. They keep expanding, right? Billie Jean King is in the mix. Candace Parker is in the mix, right? Like, And so we're starting to see people look at other teams and go, well, maybe I don't necessarily want to buy into Angel City, although people still are. Where's another team that I could maybe make an impact and also have a little more say? So then we see Naomi Osaka come in with the North Carolina Courage, right? And we just had a whole investment group come into the Washington spirit. We know uh, Sarah's Chicago Red Stars, right, are, are talking to folks as well. I think they're still adding names, and that's why that announcement has been delayed. But there's, it's really like people have, see that you can get in on the ground floor of this, and there's really, like, I feel like the NWSL is kind of primed for a big explosion now in 2021 that we were expecting post-2019 World Cup but didn't quite get because of change of format. So a lot of exciting stuff, but investment is such a key area for this league right at the moment. Yeah, it really feels, Meg, like Angel City followed what both uh, Abby Wambach and Glennon Doyle write about, which is if you're not going to give me a seat at the table, I'm just going to build my own table. Right. They were like, hey, if ownership across sports is just old, rich white guys and we want the trickle down effect of, of, of diversity in sport, we have to start at the top level. And they created that by, by doing it at Angel City. And then everyone else looked around and was like, Oh, we could do that? Okay, let's do that. Let's not make one person who's super rich be in charge of all this when we can get investors and people who believe in it. So it's been so fun to watch all the names come out. It's Spain and Fitz. We're talking to Meg Linehan of The Athletic. Um, 
you did a podcast that was fantastic um, with some of your big wants and desires, what you want to see as the NWSL continues to grow in reach and influence and popularity. If you could simmer that down, of course, we want people to listen to the whole sure. thing. So give them, give them the name and the plug and tell them where to go. But if you could simmer that down to maybe your top three that you think would help this league continue to build on the momentum of last year, 400% increase in ratings, tons of new attention. What do they need to do to sustain that? Yeah, so I mean, the full podcast, it's full time with Meg Linehan. I mean, obviously, you can listen to it. It's, it's like any other podcast, pretty much available on any platform. But really, I mean, when I when I try to go through and write, I do an NWSL wish list now every year. And I think that one of the most interesting things is that we we kind of hit pause, right, for 2020. And so I think some of the biggest wants that I see for this league are still an increased transparency, right? But I mean, I think about we see all this growth and we see all this development, but having this kind of five-year plan that you can bring in fans to like buy into that and feel like they own a piece of it and want to help you build a league for five years of growth, for 10 years of growth. We have all of these major events that people always talk about, oh, we're going to get a World Cup bump, right? And we got one in 2019. What are you planning for 2023? Are you already thinking about how do I take advantage of the 2023 World Cup and build my league around this ma- major international event and put myself kind of like right. front Proactive and center of it of as reactive. a league? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So those are those are really the big things I think that we have to start looking at this league in terms of just you know we're starting to see all of these new influences come in. But, you know, I think about the WNBA hoodie, right, and how influential that's been. And the NWSL is starting to figure that stuff out and maybe a little bit copycatish, but, like, how do you find something that just, like, lights up your fan base and finally breaks you out of this mold in a much more significant cultural way? And that's what's really exciting about the NWSL right now. That's a huge one. I talk about that a lot. For whatever reason, there's a tendency to sort of infantilize women's sports as always being about being a role model for girls or being family-oriented. They need to be edgier and cooler, and they, you need to respect the fan base. And that WNBA hoodie became this thing that's a cultural movement, and, and it, it somehow gets you into the game because you care about the gear. And if that's how some people need to enter, that's great. That's fine. And so they need to kind of think that way as well as opposed to the traditional ways that we consider uh, the growth of women's sports. And I think you're right about being proactive instead of reactive in terms of investment before those big events, instead of simply trying to cash in afterwards. Uh, it's a great podcast, great columns, and uh, we appreciate you coming in, helping us do a little catching up on what we missed. Thanks, Meg. Thanks, Meg. Thank you so much. Still nodded at nil-nil, by the way, in that U.S.-Canada match that we just talked about, the She Believes Cup opening up for the U.S. tonight. ESPN Radio presented by Progressive Insurance. Small business protection for more than vehicles with insurance expertise to help keep your company moving forward. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. Coming up, why the Carson Wentz trade to Indy was cause for celebration for one of us today. It's next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. I'd like to amend my statements from a few moments ago. The score is now 1-0, USA. Roosevelt putting it in the net in the She Believes Cup opener. U.S. now up on Canada late in the second half. It's Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Don't forget, guys, the college basketball season's heating up, and that means the Wendy's Wooden Watch has begun. Go to ESPN.com and search Wooden Watch for the list of the Wooden Award late season top 20 nominees to watch as this season rolls on. 
Some players to keep an eye on include Villanova senior guard Colin Gillespie and Louisville senior guard Dana Evans. The John R. Wooden Award presented by Wendy's. So we talked about the Wentz deal a couple times tonight. Obviously the big news of the day. And one of the things I failed to mention is that it hit the tweets today. I saw I saw Schefter's tweet right before we were going to tape HQ. And I had a moment of deep sigh and relief. Because even though my Bears don't seem to have a plan at the quarterback position, and they might just run it back after an 8-8 eight and eight season with good old Mitch and Nick Foles, I still didn't want Wentz because I was certain that my team was going to give up a small fortune for a guy that I don't think would succeed with the offensive line that the Bears have and I don't think would have the confidence to pull himself out of the hole in the system that we're in now where where the, the quarterback position is so scrutinized, even more so in Chicago than anywhere else. It, it felt like a lateral move that they might give up a lot for, so I'm grateful that they didn't. I would rather stand pat with the disappointing and sad quarterbacks we already have instead of importing one from someone else's sadness. And Fitz, I don't know if that's the right attitude to have because there is an upside to Wentz that frankly isn't there. Well, it's there with Foles in very limited limited uh, sample sizes, usually in postseasons and Super Bowls. Um, but I, am I wrong for celebrating not at least a change of pace? I'm torn on this one because, you know, I don't value my health and safety, so I trolled you a little <laughs> later in the day. You sure did. I took a picture of the ESPN uh, headline graphic that said, uh, Darnold to the Bears. Like, that was the projection. I think it was Field Yates that was projecting yeah, was, at the time. But, uh, you know, Sam Darnold to the Bears. And that was when – that was really an awakening moment for me, though, Sarah, because my initial reaction for you was much like yours. I thought, well, Sarah's going to be happy. The Bears didn't give up a bunch for Carson Wentz. But then I got to thinking about it, and it's like, well, what are they going to give up something for? Because I, they're not picking at a spot in the draft where there's likely going to be a quarterback there that they can look at and say, oh, this is the guy. Like, that that doesn't seem plausible to me. So now all of a sudden it becomes a competition for who exactly? There just isn't – for all of the change that we've been talking about, I'm not sure that many any of those quarterbacks are better than Carson Wentz. Yeah, I think your enthusiasm for the trade is in part because – a whole lot wasn't given up for him, and in part because it feels like the best-case scenario for Carson Wentz. And I know it's it's easy to jump on somebody, especially someone making that much money that's that disappointing, um, but I'm rooting for Carson Wentz to dig himself out of this. This is a guy that was an MVP-type quarterback at one point. I would like him to find that part of his game and be in a system and a position to excel, and that's Indy. It wouldn't have been Chicago. So I'm, I'm good with this. Uh, you know, I think there's a part of me that until Deshaun Watson signs somewhere is still going to believe that the Bears could just give up, you know, the rights to the city uh, in order to acquire him. I don't think it's going to happen, but I guess my hope is to make a big splash, to really to make a giant trade and on on, on draft night go out and get a, a quarterback that that's relevant. It's just been so long. It's just disappointing, Fitz, and maybe I would rather have the team stink and have a position to acquire a, a, a real starting quarterback than to just keep mulling in mediocrity, particularly if it's just acquiring failed Philadelphia quarterbacks. And I hear that, and I, look, you're right in everything you're saying, and something that's point, pointed out to me numerous times is sometimes I'm so risk-averse at quarterback that maybe I just accept okay when I should be pushing for greatness for my favorite team. I also think, though, this year particularly, 
there's a little bit of an element of like, hey, you're walking into a bar and you think, you know, you're a single person walking into the bar and you think that it's going to be a bar full of super bottles. And then you're reminded <laughs> that you're not in New York, L.A., Milan or Greece. You're in Paducah, Kentucky. No offense, Paducah. <laughs> and all of a sudden Yikes. you look around and you say, man, th- th- this is not the same. This is not what I thought. I'd be walking into the bar and checking right. out. And then That's you get to 3 a.m. Like, and you look around, and you're like, all right, I got two options that are And left. you're like, your name is, your name is Trabisca. Cool. Yeah, no, let's go. Yeah. You know, I mean, that, that's. That's sort of where I feel like everybody is. And, and as much as we've talked about the chaos, and I do believe that there are good players, like this is this is chaos of mediocrity. Like there are a lot of quarterbacks that are going to move around this year that are okay quarterbacks that hope by finding their new boo that they'll suddenly blossom into somebody else. I just don't know that you can bank on that. My sister had a boyfriend from Paducah, Kentucky. She met him while we were on vacation in Hilton Head. And she went down to visit him in Paducah, which is why I know that that's a place and Was not he a made particularly attractive. I don't recall. I don't believe so. It's Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN app. Stay out of my mentions. Uh, by the way, the the possibility that I celebrate the Bears not even putting in an offer for Wentz and that he goes on to excel in Indy and leave me wondering what he could have done in Chicago, albeit knowing that they don't have the offensive line to protect him. But let's just say he does excel. That's going to hurt. And when I listened to Dan Orlovsky today on NFL Live just singing the praises of what Wentz is going to do in Indy, it did make me wonder, will I be eating my words? No, absolutely not. I mean, we're talking about a guy that, when it's right, he's a top six or seven player in the NFL. You know, I think the the reality for this move when it comes to the Colts is it places that I think there's four teams as we sit here today that are top of the AFC conference. Kansas City, obviously. Buffalo, obviously. Cleveland, and this puts Indy in that top four. Number two, I would put Carson Wentz into the MVP conversation. I believe in him and Indianapolis that much. And then three, I'd say this. This 2021 Colts team is going to look a heck of a lot like that 2017 Philadelphia Eagles team. You're talking about a top five offensive line and run game. That's what he had in Philly. Philly didn't have a star in 2017. They had like four or five really good pieces around them. That's what Indy has, top 10 defense. I believe in Carson Wentz, and I know everyone's talking about the mental aspect and all that, and we're going to get into that, but I think that this is a absolute home run for the Colts and something that the Eagles will absolutely regret two or three years from now. Fitz, MVP? MVP, is this, a, is this good take, hot take, or a different segment? Oh, no, that's a hot take. I mean, I don't care what segment it is. And, and look, I said earlier, I think it's a home run for the Colts. I agree with so much of what Dan just said. But MVP, let's dial it back just a little bit. And the other side of it is the Eagles, I don't think, will regret it. Because whatever he accomplishes with Indy, there's no guarantee he ever would have done that with Philadelphia. The culture was broken. His relationship was broken. The trust was broken. That's not stuff you just fix. And I don't think that they were going to go to therapy to get it right. So whatever he does in Indy doesn't mean that he would have ever done that in Philly at this point in his career also let's not make it mvp just like most good player like most pretty good like mpgp listen we'll i don't want to i don't want to talk our boy orlovsky out of giving us the goods so let's oh, let him let's nurture his hot takery because if we're challenging it he might not give us that good good stuff next year when we need it for good take hot take and we know he is the endless pool of hot takes Remember, he only has salt and pepper in his cu- in his cupboard. That's, That's the only true. two spices. That's true. So his hot comes from the takes, not from any spice. That's right.
Well, he's hot or cold. That's all he's got. There is no middle ground for him. It's MVP <laughs> or utter failure. Freddie and Fitzsimmons are coming up. They had Carmelo Anthony on last night. Who will Ooh. they have tonight? Listen and find out. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.